Hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. Ah, it's rum and eggnog season. And we finally had our great huge, too huge and problematic tree taken down out front. It's too close to the house, too big, and still growing. So, with it down, we were at last able to put up our outside lights. And I did not fall out of a tree whilst stringing red and blue LEDs all through it. I might have done a bit of shopping on Santa's behalf the other day, but I won't burden him with it. I'll just use Canada Post. And we attended a virtual party on the weekend. Those are great because we don't have to decide who's the designated driver. Last week, I told you about how this week's episode was written based on a painting. I'll tell you about that after the chapter. Here is chapter 10. Gatekeeper's Deception by Krista Wallace Chapter 10 What Have You Done Now? Kean Barthelon took Roman's recommendation and sought seclusion in his study. He poured himself a glass of wine and pulled out parchment and quill. Poised to write, the high elf could not erase his wife's strained face from his mind. A large mouthful of wine served the purpose of sending a breath of air to his taut muscles. He began to write. Val. This letter will take several weeks to reach you, so the news will be that much older. Have you had any word from your company? Based on your last letter, nearly eight weeks have passed since they left you. Alon seems to have several days of stability, and then she worsens, and even the best healer in Rydris cannot ease her. Her fever increases and subsides hourly. We are only able to dribble broth into her throat. No conventional medicines seem to help. We are all exhausted and grateful for the moments of respite that occur too infrequently and are too short-lived. By now the people of Shale must have elected a new mayor. I am confident that you and Governor Linden have everything running smoothly. Yours, K.B. With any luck, Kean would see Valraker in a few weeks' time. There was no need for Kier to urge her friends to leave the cold fells immediately the following morning. No one had slept well. The wind picked up as the sun rose, blowing the damp rock smell of the nearby crags through their hair and making the place unbearable again. They'd found what they came here for, so why hang around? They ate while packing up their belongings, too chilly to sit still and eager to get away from this desolate place. With no warning of pursuers, fictitious or otherwise, necessary to get her friends moving, Kier decided to hold off on telling anyone about her visitor of the night before. She scrutinized the white stone for any marks of identification, and finding none, she tucked it into her pocket. I'll keep it for now, anyway. The strange man had been truthful about the goblins. She had no reason not to trust him, for now. As if some higher power had been listening to her thoughts, a cry from Deskellen pierced through the wind. About a dozen riders were approaching from the south. They were downwind, which was why the horses had not given their advanced warning. Okay, guardian, you have my attention. A chill that was not the wind raced up Kier's spine. Do you suppose they're hostile? Deskellen hollered. Kier knew the answer to that. Fennel and Skimnoddle had already knocked arrows, and she grabbed her bow from its straps on Trigg's side. I think we should just assume everyone's hostile, 
Why aren't they coming any closer? Derry yelled through the whistling wind, his cloak billowing around his legs. He was right. The riders had advanced slowly, certainly not at a gallop, showing a bizarre lack of desperation to reach their quarry, and now they seemed to have come to a stop, horses rearing, about sixty yards south of where Kier stood. Fennel leapt onto Layout's back with agility in spite of his wound. "'They can't come any further!' he cried triumphantly. "'There seems to be some sort of fissure in the ground!' He dropped into the saddle. "'Caused by the earthquake, I expect. Let's get going before they find a way around!' They hastily mounted, and Duskellen began a hurried pace to the northwest. Unheard over the wind, a volley of arrows flew by, sticking into the ground in an unrhythmic staccato. Pain shot through Kier's left shoulder, and the reins slipped through her limp fingers. With a yell, she dropped forward and clung with her right arm to Trigg's neck. Yep, they're hostile. Hunter backhanded Troy, whose bow flew a few feet away. You fool, he raged. I said not to shoot. He hardly blinked as an enemy arrow, assisted by the direction of the wind, thunked into the soft underside of Baker's left arm. Baker fell and Harley ran to him. The chief stormed back and forth. "'You idiots! I said not to shoot! I said not to touch the girl, and what did you do? You hit no one but her!' They had travelled two and a half leagues north since before sunrise, and had just reached the top of a slope and sighted their prey. Those who could galloped forward in pursuit— Valraker's company hadn't heard them coming by mercy of a north wind, but the riders had stopped abruptly, horses rearing up, squealing. A section of the hillside had crumbled, leaving a rent across the path that extended in either direction. Arrows flew in spite of the chief's order. Now Hunter cursed as he watched Kier and her friends dash away. From the distance, he couldn't tell how seriously the girl had been hurt. She was still horsed, that was a good sign, but they might be bluffing. "'I will kill you if she dies,' he growled, pointing a finger at Troy, who glowered as he retrieved his bow. Chief Hunter rode a few paces in both directions, unable to see either end of the tear in the slope. At its narrowest, it was about eight feet across. "'Tigo, you take your horse at a run and see if you can jump the crevice,' he ordered. Tigo snorted. "'With all due respect, Chief, I'd like to see you try it first, he answered, to Hunter's shock. I will not risk my mount's life, let alone my own. Hunter gritted his teeth against a reply, admiring the man's pluck for saying the very thing he would have said himself. He marched forward, but as he neared the precipice, he found himself unwilling to do so in a standing position. He lay down and crawled ahead to peer over the side. A horse could likely jump it, but the animal would shy away from its depth and would risk breaking limbs on a downhill landing. He backed off before rising and kicking a notch in the grass. Damn it, he yelled. We'll have to send scouts in either direction to find a narrow point in this crack, if not the end of it. My patience is being tried by fate. He glared around at his company. I advise none of you to see how far I can be pushed. Somebody help me down if we're going to be here a while, said Mullen, whose broken ankle had kept him in the saddle throughout the exchange of arrows. Ow! he yelled at Kep, who positioned himself as if he were assisting a lady and guided the man's weight off the horse. Watch it, you bastard! Take it slow! Kep said nothing but removed himself from Mullen's side as soon as he was down. Hey, where do you think you're going? Just help me sit down, would you? A brief flash of silver startled them all, and suddenly Mullen was sprawled on the grass, having been separated from both the offending ankle and his head. 
Juggler had already sheathed his short swords by the time they all realized what had happened. His feet were planted evenly, hands hugging his elbows, a disgusted look on his face. He shrugged. Hate whiners. They were the first words Hunter had ever heard him utter. Hunter snapped his jaw shut and glared. Mental note, don't ever offend Juggler. With a shudder hidden by a sigh of frustration, he sent Tigo to follow the crack to the northeast and Harley to the southwest. They were to return as soon as they found a narrow and shallow enough place to cross, or after two hours, whichever came first. More delays. Great. Skimnoddle let an arrow fly back at their assailants. A rider went down. Good shot, Fennel said. Derry whirled Donegal around to come to Kier's aid. Don't stop, yet, Kier panted through the searing pain in her back. Get out of bow range. She's right, ride on, Derry called, though he rode next to her from there on. Jeskellen trotted along on his bare feet, achieving remarkable speed. After half an hour, even Fennel could no longer see the strangers who had attacked them, whereupon Derry insisted they stop. The land rippled in swells and hollows, so Derry posted Fennel and Skimnoddle at the top of a rise to watch for their attackers, while the others readied a rest spot in a hollow where the wind was comparatively calm. Kier had not said a word, but she tasted blood on her lips, she bit them so tightly. She clung to Trigg's neck, her body bent double in the saddle, all her energy concentrated on staying there. The world had gone silent around her. She allowed Derry to ease her off her horse, giving him her full weight. She was beyond pain. Face down on her bedroll among the sagebrush, Kier gritted her teeth while Derry unbuckled her cuirass to see how deeply the arrow was lodged in her shoulder. Sweat trickled down her face in spite of the wind, and the musty aroma of sage entered her nostrils. Hold still, Kier. Derry bent down to peer under the leather armor without lifting it too much. She winced and sucked air through her teeth. Okay, it's all right. He lowered the leather and sat up straight. You were lucky, Kier, the physiker adept said. The head is only just under your skin. He illustrated with his fingers, holding them low enough so she could see. It looks worse because it penetrated the leather, but somehow, and I have no idea how, which is why you're lucky, it made a much smaller puncture than I expected given its velocity. I'll have to remove it before I can see what internal damage there is, if any. There's too much blood to see more. He managed, with help from Jeskellen, who held the edge of her cuirass, to pull out the arrowhead without tearing the open skin. Kier held back a cry and felt relief as soon as the metal had been removed. Once it was out, Jeskellen broke the shaft and pulled both ends out of the leather armor. Then the mage helped Derry remove her armor completely so the physiker could clean the wound and assess the damage. Derry's salve numbed the pain, and he gave Kier a bitter leaf to chew, which took the edge off further while a healing potion worked its way into her system. She refused further treatment so they could get moving. They rode due west, aiming for a pass that would lead them through the mountains to the eastern tip of the Sea of Kun on the other side. By late afternoon, Kier had regained close to full mobility of her arm with only minor pain. She'd have to work out the stiffness, but that was easier than healing a wound. They had outrun the chill winds and could no longer see the jagged stone of the cold fells. The mountains stretched from side to side as far as even Fennel's eye could see, and as they neared them over the next few days, the serrated spurs and textures of the hills began to distinguish themselves, looking like crazy tendrils of curls or spindly tree-covered insect legs. 
Clumps of snow stubbornly hung on to their solid form even in early summer, and Kier thanked herself several times for bringing along a woolen hat and extra underclothes. The horses labored into the higher elevation. The going was slow, and Duskellen was just as glad as the animals for the chance to rest his legs one midday. "'I hope your friend Kami knows what he's talking about,' Derry said. "'Of course he does,' Kier said. "'Why do you doubt him?' "'Oh, I don't,' Derry replied. "'Yet. I can just picture him sitting in front of a crystal ball, laughing as he watches us struggle along on this wild journey. "'Why would you accuse him of that? He wishes for our success.' "'We'll only know that once we are successful. "'How can you defend him so readily? "'Do you really know that?' "'He's a good man, Derry,' Kier insisted, "'irked by his odd mood. "'I spent some time with him, remember?' "'Derry harumphed. "'I remember.' "'Kier shook her head at him "'and was relieved to get moving again. "'The trees were different from what she had seen before. "'Yellow cedars with silvery trunks jutting skyward, "'and mountain hemlocks with their bluish cones swollen with pollen. "'Low-hanging clouds coated their path in a mist "'that dripped softly off the trees and dampened Kier's hair. "'The silence seemed to be more intense, "'and Kier felt oddly jittery. "'It didn't help that she kept catching Jaskel "'and stealing glances at her every now and again.' The second night in the mountains, Kier awoke from a disquieting dream and instinctively snatched up her sword. Jaskelin instantly appeared at her side. "'What is it?' he whispered. "'You didn't hear it?' "'It has been as still as ever,' he said, though he cocked his head thoughtfully. "'What ought I to have heard?' Kier shook her head. "'I heard a voice. It was nothing, I guess, a dream.' "'It is no matter. Rest easy now,' the mage said. But he hesitated before moving away. "'You did not happen, did you, to find any items while you were in the underground caverns, "'items that could perchance be magical?' "'Kier bristled with alertness. "'No. At least Fennel found a hawk's claw. Why?' "'She saw the silhouette of the mage's nod in the dim firelight. "'I have not wished to alarm you, but I sense the presence of magic when I am near you. "'Have you any idea what might cause me to feel that way?' His tone reminded her of her old schoolteacher and the way she would none too sweetly try to wheedle an admission of guilt out of her. Um, she paused. You've seen my medallion. Could that be it? I have sensed that all along. I am feeling new sensations of late. Hmm. Kier shook her head in the dark. No idea. I never picked anything up. That was true. Her guardian had handed it right to her. Jaskelin hesitated, as if expecting her to add something else, then left her. Kier lay down again. Her conscience kept her awake for a little while. Late the next day, Kier heard the voice again. They plodded along a narrow path in a particularly dense mile or two of firs. Derry led with Fennel behind him, followed by Jaskelin on foot and Skimnoddle's pony. Janik brought up the rear behind Kier. A bee buzzed around her head, and she nearly missed it the first time. The voice said, Here. An opening in the wall of trees caught her eye, but with the laziness of the travel she disregarded it in the first instant. In the second instant, however, she was straight as a yellow cedar in her saddle. Yes, here, said the voice in Kier's head. She reined her horse in, and Janik had to stop suddenly to avoid running into Trigg. What's the big idea? 
Janik demanded, but Kier was already on the ground, striding back a few paces behind them. Fennel and Derry turned around in their saddles to see what the fuss was all about, and Jaskelin called out, "'Where are you going?' Kier kept walking, knowing there was something she had seen, but only out of the corner of her eye. "'Didn't you see the tunnel back here?' She stopped walking and stared off to one side of the path between the trees. She said nothing about the voice. "'Tunnel?' Jaskelin joined her. They had missed it because of being so intent on the path ahead, and it was obscured by heavy undergrowth, but she was right. Overhanging branches, twisted and gnarled, curved above them, forming not really a tunnel, more like an archway through the forest. If there had at one time been a path beneath it, it was now less discernible, covered with bracken and sword ferns and snowberry. Kier reached out and touched one of the trees to find that it was smooth and felt as damp as it looked. It was as if their bark had been peeled off, revealing the unblemished wood beneath. Grey-green lichen hung in tendrils from above, and a soft mist curled around the plant life on the ground. Fennel and Derry reached her and peered down the tunnel that curved but a few paces in, so they could not see where it headed, besides deeper into the forest. Kier turned back to the others. "'Who wants to come with me?' "'Wait a minute,' Derry put a restraining hand on her arm. "'Is this one of Kami's instructions?' "'No,' she admitted. "'Why is this necessary, then? "'We're a little pressed for time, you remember?' "'Honestly, Derry, I'm surprised you don't have a taskmaster's whip in your hand.' Then Kier softened. "'Look, why not? It won't take long, I promise.' Was he persuaded? "'Kier, my answer is no.' She smirked at him. "'Good to know, in case I ever ask.' His body went rigid. Look, you go on ahead. I'll catch up. I won't be a minute. I just have to look. The captain scowled at her. His lips worked over clenched teeth as though he were fighting a desire to shackle her for insubordination. She smiled, hopefully, acutely aware of manipulating him. Finally, he yielded with a sigh. Well, we can't all go. He raised his eyebrows at Jaskelin. Jaskelin nodded. I'll come with you, if only to be aware of magical presences or anything that might be potentially harmful. The mage gripped his staff. Kier translated his comment to mean, I'll come along because I don't trust that you won't get into trouble, with a little bit of, I don't want to miss out on anything interesting, thrown in. Skimnoddle's full voice rang through the trees. To shield you from danger, I would stride fearlessly into the very conflagration of Dragor's dragons, he pronounced, and yet this time I feel my place is with your beast. Kier hoped her relief was not too apparent. If you aren't back in half an hour, we'll come after you, Derry said by way of warning Kier to be quick about it. Kier nodded and ducked her head under the strands of lichen. The smooth, purplish archway was low enough that a taller person would have to watch his head, but Kier and Jaskelin did not share this concern. They wisely paid attention to what their feet were doing, for the mist veiled their footing in cloudy swirls, and they stumbled over occasional rocks and tree roots. The tunnel curved to the right, then left, and to the right again. "'How long do you suppose it's been since anyone walked on this path?' Kier asked. "'I cannot say,' Jaskelin replied." I cannot see the ground well enough through this clingy mist, he added distastefully. It may have been travelled yesterday, maybe a hundred years ago. Nor can I see signs on the trees. Perhaps if Fennel were here, he'd see something I cannot. It's unnerving, Kier stepped over a protruding root. Why is there even mist here? It doesn't make sense. And these trees, they look sort of like cottonwoods, but not really. 
Look at all the colors in them. Brown, burgundy, violet, green, gold. Strange. A trick of the light, perhaps, as it is filtering down through the branches. Slow down, would you? How can you step so sure-footedly, Kier, without tripping? I am stumbling with every other step. The mist had moistened the earth, and there were mosses underneath Jaskelin's feet to make his barefoot walking even more hazardous. Kier slowed down. She could not explain her eagerness to follow the tunnel, nor the reason she had no trouble on the path. She knew only that she had to follow it. They walked for about ten minutes before the tunnel opened into a clearing the size of Hreth's town square. The trees stretched high, their tops curving overhead like a protective dome, with only a small patch of sky visible. Like the path, the floor of the clearing was blanketed with thick mist, white as snow and equally obscurant of the ground beneath. Kier gazed in awe, her muscles twitching and alive, her very skin fine-tuned, listening to the energy that radiated all around. She stepped forward, about to plough through the fog, but Jaskelin grabbed her arm. "'Do not be foolish, Kier. Let me see if I can detect any magic first. You do not know what lies beneath that mist.' "'Okay, okay, a little nervous, are we?' he glared at her. "'Do your spell, then.' She rested her left hand on the hilt of her sword as the mage bent his head to his staff, murmuring words in a sibilant tongue. "'He's right,' she conceded with a deep breath and cast her eyes about the clearing. The mist might conceal a massive pit, for all she knew. A fresh, damp smell hung in the air. Jaskelin finally lifted his head. I can sense no animal presence, not alive anyway, and though I can detect a slight hint of magic, it is very faint. It is either far away, or it has been so long unused that it is dormant. I would still caution you to tread carefully, Kier. She nodded, and, heeding his words about things hiding under the whiteness, she drew her sword to poke the ground in front of her as she walked. Spiraling inwards in a counterclockwise direction, she stuck her sword tip into the mist every few feet, and the clouds curled and swirled coldly around her legs. It has been a long time since anyone was here, she thought. The coldness felt ancient. That was the only way to describe it. Something caught her foot, and she fell headlong. The mist billowed around and over her. She heard Duskelin cry out in alarm as her head disappeared under the opaque fog. "'I'm all right,' she called, but her voice simply came back to her, the fog playing a trick with the sound and enveloping it close to her body. She lifted her head and looked back. As her companion rushed to her aid from across the clearing, he halted in alarm. The mist undulated and rippled as if touched by a breeze. It surrounded the mage, and he shivered with the frigidity. The cloud of fog curled over itself as wave after wave it drifted up out of the clearing and clung to the surrounding trees as if it grew there alongside the lichen. Kier found herself on hands and knees staring at the thing over which she had stumbled and her hair stood on end, a cry of horror stuck in her chest. She had tripped over a skeleton, and it was not the only one in the clearing. A dozen people had done battle here, a long time ago, for the bones were clean of flesh and the meager assortment of armor they had worn was rotting into the ground. Kier disguised a shudder by sitting back on her haunches. She looked over her shoulder to where Jaskelin stood transfixed, his staff held against himself like an amulet. She swallowed. How old do you suppose these are? Jaskelin frowned thoughtfully and shook his head. His voice trembled. 
It is difficult to estimate. With his staff, he poked at the unfortunate fellow nearest him. I should not have thought they could last long out in the weather, not to mention the invasion of wild animals. It is one thing to preserve bones in such in a place out of the cold damp air and rain. They should not last so long out in the fog. Then again, he added, casting an uneasy glance up at the clouds hanging from the trees, that was no ordinary fog. Their armor is old, though, maybe several hundred years. He crouched to investigate the bodies near him. Kier had all but tuned the mage out. The man who had tripped her, at least she assumed it was a man, was on his side, his arms splayed out above his head. One hand, though it was only white, weather-polished bones, still clutched the hilt of a sword. Even in this dim clearing after several hundred years, it gleamed as brightly as Kami's silver wine-goblets. The two-handed hilt looked as new, the leather-bound ricasso was intact— Kier wondered if this man had even tried to defend himself during the ancient battle, though if he had, she could not believe he could have been bested by any other weapon. "'Yes,' said the voice again, and Kier jumped. Jeskelin had moved to examine one of the fallen on the other side of the clearing. The mist still hugged the violet branches up above, but it had started its slow swirl again, and she wondered if she was on a time limit. She hastily returned her eyes to look hungrily at the sword, admiring the catrefoils on the ends of the crossguard and the deep red gem on the pommel. Slowly she reached out to touch the etchings in the silver. "'But this is burial ground. It shouldn't be disturbed,' she told herself. She felt, rather than heard, puzzlement from the voice." She hesitantly changed her reasoning. Is this why I was called to come here? Yes, the voice said. Barakel. The whirling mist had descended halfway back to the earth. Kier looked into the sockets that once held a warrior's eyes. Barakel. It was a good name for a sword. Thank you, friend, she whispered, and heart pounding in her ears, her hand gripped the hilt of the sword, drawing it swiftly to her. Her left hand joined her right to compensate for the length of the weapon, and it was upright in front of her. A quiver shot through her body, and Duskellen suddenly cried out from across the clearing, Kier, no! He ran across the ground to her. You must not touch it! That is the magic that I felt earlier! Be it evil or good, you have awakened it! You must put it down! He stopped short in front of her. She barely heard him, mesmerized by the feel of the weapon in her hand, the rightness of it. The three-and-a-half-foot blade, not much longer than her old bastard sword, shone curiously bright in the dull, misty light, and its tip sparkled like a crystal. It weighed much less than she expected it to. It was as if she were meant to wield it. Jeskelin's face was rigid with fear. Kier, this is sacred ground, untouched for hundreds of years. What can you be thinking by removing that? She slowly lowered the silver tip to horizontal, her muscles easily compensating for its length, then raised her eyes to his. His gaze was equal portions of shock and fear. It's all right, she smiled calmly. He gave it to me. The first waves of mist plunged down around them again, and Kier had to scramble to retrieve the warrior's baldric and scabbard. She fumbled blindly with the buckles, but in spite of the barrage of rebukes from her comrade, she was unhesitating. The sword was hers. The baldric came free, and she snatched it up, the bones of its previous owner thunking unceremoniously to the ground in her haste. 
Juskelin fled the clearing and cowered at the mouth of the tunnel when the tide of mist crashed over the battleground. Kier walked over to him, sliding the blade into its home. It was a bit longer than Brendau's. She'd have to practice. She slung the leather strap across her shoulder, adjusting and fastening the straps. Juskelin turned his reproving stare away from her and entered the tunnel. Kier followed and tried to think of something to say. "'Listen!' She hurried to catch up with him. I can't stand it that you're angry about this. I understand your feelings. Please, I don't know if I can explain it to you, but I'll try. Juskelin waited, shifting his weight from one foot to the other, as if reluctant to spend another moment in that tunnel. Complete honesty was best this time. Call me crazy if you like, but I swear upon my life that the warrior spoke to me, telling me the sword is mine. She read doubt in his eyes, and her heart fell. You have to trust me on this. The mage did not respond. How else can you explain the mist, she suggested. It stayed up out of the way just long enough for me to find this, and then it fell again. That was caused by your movement, Juskelin argued. All mist swirls away when you step through it. And clears out a whole area like that? I don't think so, Juskelin. You can't explain it any more than I can. Do you want to go back and try to make it happen again? All right, then I will. The mage stubbornly accepted the challenge. Kier hoped he would be unsuccessful. She could think of no other way to convince him. They retraced their steps. Juskelin marched into the clearing, a challenge in his step. He spun around the ring, trying to dissipate the fog, to no avail. Can't you see that what happened before was completely out of the ordinary? Kier stepped forward to call a truce. I promise you I would not have taken it if... She stopped short. The mist billowed around Kier's feet, curling and swirling as before, retreating in waves to the trees. She froze and stared around her on the ground. They looked at each other in horror. The skeletons, their armor, their weaponry, were gone. Every sign that a battle had ever taken place in this clearing had vanished. Kier's stomach lurched. "'How do you explain that?' Juskelin said softly. "'I don't. Let's get out of here.' Neither of them had ever walked so quickly. Her thoughts went back to Kami and his offer of knowledge. Yet if she had stayed with him, she would not have found this magnificent weapon. Still, the mist, the battle scene, the warrior's voice in her head, she finally forced herself to ask the question— did I make the right choice? Derry's expectant glances toward the tunnel entrance had become more frequent, and he was about to suggest that someone go after them when they came into view. Kier's lips were pressed together, and she held her chin up, as though trying to appear unruffled, yet her furrowed brow told him her composure was feigned. Jeskelin looked downright alarmed. The captain opened his mouth to ask, Juskelin beat him to it. Let's go, he said sharply, and they all scrambled onto horseback. The mage's glance told Derry he'd tell him later. As Kier put a foot in her stirrup and hoisted herself upward, the baldric across her chest and a brilliant red jewel at her hip flashed at Derry like fireworks. He caught Kier's eye and shot a question at her, but he was met with a stare that bespoke smugness and challenge. He frowned. What have you done now? Kier rode in silence for a time, considering how to explain her choice to the others in a way they'd understand. 
She expected they would not, no matter how she approached it. Derry rode in brooding silence. The look on his face had said, "'How dare you!' How could she possibly explain when he already thought her guilty of being terribly injudicious? It was as if he'd dug a hole and stuck her in it and demanded she dig her way out. "'I didn't do anything wrong,' she had tried to convey with her wordless reply. Kier's body undulated along with Triggs, and she adjusted her baldric to make riding comfortable with the new weapon. Her left hand rested comfortably on the hilt, next to her old sword, and she felt a strange sense of completion. "'What's with you, Kier?' Fennel piped up, turning back and laughing at her. "'You look like someone just gave you a surprise gift.' "'I do?' She couldn't argue with his assessment. She had been given a gift. "'You're grinning like you're dancing during spring rites.' "'Oh, I guess I am.' A short self-assessment confirmed a giddiness she hadn't been aware of. Instinct told her it was the sword. "'Should I be worried?' she thought, but dismissed the concern almost instantly. The sword, she realized, was happy. That was certainly not a thing she intended to speak aloud. From behind her, Derry said, "'We need to camp soon. Traveling in these mountains, we lose the sunlight early.' Given that we have lost an hour, I am gratified that it wasn't a complete waste of all our time. Stung, all Kier could say was, I'm glad you see it that way. A while later, Skimnoddle handed Kier her share of the rabbit he had turned on the spit. She thanked him quietly, avoiding attracting more attention. Care to tell us more about your side trip into the woods? Derry slid meat off a small bone. "'I'd be interested to hear how you knew to go that way,' Janik said. Kier swallowed. "'The answer won't satisfy you. "'It was really just a feeling I had. "'The place itself was eerie, wasn't it, Jaskelin?' "'She hoped he would elaborate and help her explain. "'The mage was no help. "'I did not like being there, not one bit. "'I said we should leave, and then that mist rose.' "'He broke off and shuddered.' It was the scene of an ancient battle. Kier described what the two of them had seen. We looked around and left. Only after you took the weapon off a dead body. He wasn't using it anymore, she said, and instantly wished she hadn't. Look, I can't explain it any better than I have. I had a feeling. It felt right. It still feels right. We lost a little bit of travel time. I'm sorry about that. "'The sword's a beauty,' Fennel said. "'Twas only an hour.' Skimnoddle dropped a bone onto his tin plate with a ting. "'We shall make it up with ease in the coming days.' Fennel elbowed the mage. "'Just hustle along a little faster, Disgallon. Kier didn't think the mage found the comment funny. The next day they reached the edge of the dense forest and burst out into an alpine meadow where some great arm had swept the trees to one side and had spread a rainbow of coloured cloth across the empty bowl that remained. All manner of shades of green grasses and ferns were emblazoned with heather, lupins, buttercups, purple daisies and trilliums, wondrously bright in spite of the fog and mist. The continuing drip sound was more like laughter than the rain it had resembled when they were within the trees. Now, too, it was accompanied by an orchestra of bumblebees skitting among the heather. A spider web clung to a bush, its every strand detailed by the dew. Two mountain goats grazed, and a grouse or pheasant fluttered into the air and descended again. 
A chickadee-filled tree was a chorus of chatterers, and all around the edge of the bowl the yellow cedars spiked up like swords into the fog. Out of the mist rode a solitary figure. Hunter could think of no way to slow them down. After following the rent in the earth far to the west, it narrowed enough for the horses to clear it with ease and few jitters. Far from setting his little company behind on the trail of their quarry, Hunter bemoaned the nearness of the mountains. Kier and her friends had gone into them, and though Hunter could not tell which spur they'd entered, Misty said it didn't matter. We know of another way, don't we, Juggles? Juggler polished the sword that lived on his right hip and nodded without looking up. There's a trail not two leagues from this place, Misty went on in her satiny voice, that will carry us into the hills and around close to the Sea of Kun. If we hurry, we will skirt round our little party of heroes and likely reach it before they do. She grinned at Hunter, a sight that did not bring him mirth. We can surprise them, Misty hissed, and followed it with a giggle. <laughs> Hunter turned his head to find something interesting in a fir tree that clung stubbornly to the precarious hillside. Fine. Huran and Danae hesitated before leaving the cover of the trees. Far across the alpine meadow he saw riders, six of them. They were traveling west, and he would likely intersect their path on his southward route unless he remained in the shelter of the giant yellow cedars and hemlocks hidden from their view— his habit had always been to avoid conflict wherever possible. Then he considered that Six was a ridiculously small group for Dregor to send on patrol. He did not seem to believe in groups smaller than one hundred head. Besides, Hiranen was alone. A lone rider should not pose any threat to them, so why should they attack him? And if they did, well, he was the best swordsman in Rydris, and they would quickly feel the icy fire of his blade." He emerged from the forest and cantered down the hillside into the meadow of mist-dampened heather. Heads turned and became aware of him. They rode until they were directly in his path before halting their horses. Slowing, he took them in before he was within distance to speak. A knight on a warhorse, a bald black man on foot, must be from a nomadic tribe, a dwarf, an elf, these were indeed friends, not foes, a halfling, whatever for— and the one in the middle, a woman, a motley party, he had nothing to fear here. When he was within thirty paces, he raised a hand in peace and called out, Hail, friends! Reining in his horse, he spoke to the woman whose forest-green cloak gave her eyes a dark glow. Her dew-dampened hair sparkled with the morning mist. It is long since I saw friendly faces on my journeys. What brings folk of your sort hereabouts? An easy enough question, though they seemed hesitant to answer. Did they not speak Rydrish? The knight urged his warhorse a step forward, apparently asserting himself as the leader of the group. Hail in return, friend, though we seem to have an advantage, there being six of us to your one. We would ask what brings you to these parts. His tone was courteous, but Hiranin's back stiffened. Was it the knight's words, or was it that the woman smirked when he spoke them? Huran and Danae is my name, and my travels take me from my home further in the north to the south, where I hope to reunite with some acquaintances. I would hope that these lands are still free, wherein peaceful people may travel without fear of threat. Your fear is your own to do with what you wish, the knight said, his face stern. The threat is the same throughout Rydris, fear or courage notwithstanding. 
He felt his face flush, the familiar heat of anger flaring, and he opened his mouth to retort. The woman saved him. "'Settle, Derry,' she admonished quietly. "'We're friendly, right?' The woman switched her pleasant gaze to Huranin, and he felt his blood quicken, though this time not in anger. "'What he means is that as long as you're a friend to the guarded realm and foe to Lord Dregor, you are welcome to travel wherever you wish.' She glanced back at the knight, who seemed to approve of her interpretation. The rest of the party softened their demeanors upon her friendly reply. The black man even raised his brow in... surprise? "'I thank you for the translation, fair lady,' Huranin said with a bow to her, and a glaring glance at the blonde knight, whose cool stare supported the evidence of the woman's reprimand that the man tended toward hasty judgments. Huranin wondered who had received this dairy's quick temper recently, and what had happened to prompt the woman to alter his behavior. The natural darkness of the woman's eyes was much more engaging than the mood-darkened gaze of the night. Huranin had experience handling quick-tempered men, though. He ignored him and focused his own pleasant smile upon the woman. "'Foe I am indeed to Dregor. I am on my way to add the service of my sword to his destruction, for I believe his time has come.' He could not lend meaning to the glint in her eye. Only now, some have been of that mind for decades, the knight said pointedly. Yet you seem so sure of yourself. Why don't you go to him directly and save the rest of us the trouble? Derry? The woman's voice was like a dart. It arrested the bubble of fury that strained to reach Huranin's sword hand. He swallowed deliberately and used the hand instead to wave his acknowledgement of the knight's comment. It is a valid concern. He breathed through the flare of his own temper. Though I question your approach to expressing your doubt, we have met in a friendly capacity. I have done you no wrong, nor threatened you in any way. I would point out that you yourselves are heading away from the area where the Allied armies are gathering, but it is not my place to take issue with your presence here. We are on a private mission, Derry said through gritted teeth. This one is very prickly indeed, Huranin bowed. "'As am I, and I have not asked you to reveal your business to me.' He felt a sense of triumph, however minor. "'Now, although my reasons for only now stepping forward are my own, I will assure you, fair lady, that had I not been detained, I would certainly have lent my support sooner.' The knight sat in silence, but the woman said, "'I'm sure that all who oppose Dregor can't help but be grateful for your assistance.' I am glad to have come upon others of my way of thinking. Have you encountered many who are otherwise? the black man said. His voice was warm and vibrant. A shaman, likely. Only a few, he replied. Those who tried to bar my way are no longer posing a threat to anyone, so I hope I have cleared your passage. If this comment had impressed the lady, she made no sign. A hard nut to crack, then. Then she surprised him. Since we're heading northwest, not due north the way you've come, I'm afraid we won't feel the benefit of your gallantry. She was half smiling, and he wasn't sure if he detected a hint of sarcasm or not. He decided he hadn't. The halfling spoke in a clear voice that would be suited to the stage. What news can you tell us of the north? Huranin took a breath before speaking, and was cut short. "'If I may be so bold as to remind our party of the time of day,' the black man said, all politeness with a glance at the knight, "'it has been a pleasure meeting you, sir, but we must be on our way.' 
Are you in such a hurry? I hope you are able to take the time to appreciate such beautiful land. His gesture took in the meadow and the mist-covered mountain. She may as well know that he was not only an excellent warrior, but a sensitive man who had an eye for beauty in all things. Our errand is urgent, the knight explained, with less impatience than before, and we cannot tarry here, awe-inspiring though the environment may be, he bowed. We wish you a safe journey. Dima be with you, sir. And also with you, Huranen answered automatically, taken aback by the knight's abruptness. But having been so dismissed, he looked to the woman again. She regarded him not unpleasantly, and he wondered what her relationship was with the stern knight. He hoped it was not a serious one. She shifted in her saddle, and he noticed what he hadn't before, the jeweled pommel of a sword at her hip. His heart jumped. Oh, his fortune was both good and ill today, to have met such a woman and yet have no chance to make her complete acquaintance. With a bow to her, he ventured to say, Perhaps we shall meet again, and in the between time, he added, though he knew she wouldn't understand it, Fin heorte and wern vunhlefen. But when he looked up, her head was cocked to one side. Their eyes met, and he thought he read, Shock? Certainly not. He looked closer, and sure enough, it was just blank incomprehension. Still, he smiled at her, waved farewell to the strange party, and continued on his journey south to find Lord Valraker. Years ago, I went with my mum to an art show put on by the Burnaby Artists Guild. It was at the Shad Bolt Center. And we walked up and down the aisles looking at all the racks which were hung top to bottom with beautiful paintings and drawings and multimedia pieces. Just amazing art created by local talent. The piece that caught my eye was a very small watercolor painting, only about three inches by four inches, called Tunnel Vision by Jane Appleby. Please look her up. Her work is beautiful. Lots of nature scenes, and she tends toward colors I like. This piece caught my eye, and it is just as I describe it in the chapter. The, the trees are of multiple colors, and they, they sweep overhead in an arch that looks like a rounded tunnel. And I just stood there and stared at this little painting for ages, and I knew I would write about it in my book. I was writing book two at the time, as yet untitled, and I had no idea how this tunnel through the trees would fit in the story. I started writing, describing the voice Kier heard in her head and the horses stopping, and Kier goes back to find the entrance to the tunnel, Derry being pissed off that she stopped. I wrote it, Jaskelin volunteering to go with her, the trouble they had stepping on the smooth, wet surface, and I had absolutely no idea what they would find at the other end of the tunnel. I kid you not that when the two of them arrived at that clearing, it was covered in mist, and I had no idea what was in there. Kier stepped forward, and Jaskelin warned her to stay back, and he did his little detect magic spell, and then she carried on. And when that mist circled upward into the trees, the hairs on my back stood on end. I experienced that scene exactly the same way Kier did. And when she found that sword... I had no idea she was going to find a sword. I had no idea it was a battle scene. 
But when she found it, I knew that it was the right choice for her to take it. I had no clue what it was, who the dead warrior was, nor if the sword would be significant in any way. In fact, I was kind of disappointed that it probably meant she would no longer use Brendau's sword. So I won't say anything more about her new weapon at the moment, because you will hear more about that. But now you listeners know that her sword was just as much a mystery to me as it is to Kier. So look up Jane Appleby Artist to see her work and support your own local artists in your area. As for me, I would love it if you supported my art by liking and sharing this podcast. Drop a kind review of Gatekeeper's Key on Goodreads. Honestly, reviews really help authors. So if you can give it a few stars and, and maybe write down some things you liked about it, that would that's just awesome. It just really gives authors visibility. Gatekeeper's Key is available in audio only on lots of platforms, including Chirp, Apple Books, Kobo, Google Play, and others. It's not available on Audible. Amazon won't take it without there being a print or e-version of the book, and I have not created those yet. Thank you to my family, Matt, David, and Heather, and Maggie. I really miss David and Sharon. Big howdy to the original six, and thanks so very much to you, dear listeners. Oh, look, a rum and eggnog. Cheers. Now, go be fantastic.